We thank you for each and everyone attending this class. And as we continue to open our minds and going to a, a, and wanting to uh, dive deeper into the scriptures and have a clear understanding uh, of your word. Lord, we ask that you bless our mission team that has traveled to Sri Lanka. Keep them safe in your grace as they share the truth and your love. Lord, continue to bless our classmates that have health issues and other challenges that are with us and not with us today. Lord, last but not least, bless our teacher, your humble servant, Mark Lanier, as he presents the lesson to us today. Uh, give him, get, open our eyes, open our minds as we strive to dive deeper. Amen. Thank you so much, Castell. What an honor it is to get to teach you each Sunday and to share with you where I've been going this uh, journey. This is a class, I know we've got some first-time visitors because Sandy usually sits down here, but Sandy Shiver is sitting over there, and she, her lovely daughter Jen and her granddaughters Maddie and Zoe are with her this morning, so y'all may want to go over and meet them, but uh, uh, if you normally sit with Sandy down here, that's where Sandy is. She's over there. And so uh, you've got a chance to visit with her. But because I know we've got some people who haven't been in here before, I want to be sure and get everybody caught up with where we are and what we're doing. This has been one of these classes I'm trying to write, but because of the, the weirdness of, of time and, and how long it takes to write some of these lessons, it hasn't been a consistent every Sunday. It's come, I've had several Sundays in a row where we've dealt with the same thing, but not every Sunday. Here's the premise. <clears throat> Paul, the apostle and Jewish rabbi, got arrested in 57 AD in Jerusalem. He was arrested at the temple in Jerusalem and ultimately taken to Caesarea to... Uh, Dale Hearn hates the way I pronounce that word, so he emailed me specifically this week and said, would you please say it right? And so I've now said it right. And I don't have to say it right again for the rest of the class because I'm a lawyer and he told me to say it right, but he didn't put a time thing on it. So he didn't say I have to say it right all the time. <laughs> so I can now go back to Kasaria, which is the way I say it, and he doesn't like that. Anyway, Paul got arrested and ultimately was tried. He appealed his case to the Roman emperor. And if we're reading the New Testament, there's a book of history of the early church called the book of Acts. And that book of Acts goes up to the time that Paul makes his appeal and actually gets to Rome. And that's when that New Testament history stops of the church. And we've got more church history that's been written, but not that's within the Bible itself. So within the framework of understanding what the Bible has about Paul's arrest, I wanted to teach a class on Paul from a different angle. I wanted to teach a class on Paul from the perspective, if I'd been hired as his lawyer to defend him when he got arrested, how would I do it? And this is, I think, probably about our 12th class in that series. So... With all of that as the background, let's talk law for just a moment. 
One area of law where I've spent a lot of time over the last 35 years is an area of asbestos law. Asbestos is a mineral that's found in the earth. It's got a lot of unusual properties. One of the main un properties that, that is, has made asbestos used so much in our world is from its name. Asbestos is a Greek word that means it won't burn up. Asbestos, I, we, we would probably better translate it unquenchable, but it really means it won't burn up. Asbestos as a mineral is kind of fibrous. It's like a fiber. So you can weave it into cloth. You can mix it into concrete. You can do all sorts of things with it knowing that you've got a substance that doesn't burn. Well, asbestos doesn't burn, but it does some horrible things to the human body. Asbestos fibers are so small you don't see them. If you see an asbestos fiber, then you have a clump of asbestos. A single fiber can't be seen under a microscope. A single fiber is so small you have to have an electron microscope to see it. And that means when you breathe it in, it's not like an onion where it makes you sneeze or your eyes water or it smells. You don't even know it's present. It's so small you can't see it. You don't smell it. It doesn't make your eyes water. It doesn't make you sneeze. It doesn't get caught in the, the, any of the body's defense mechanisms. It goes all the way down into the deepest part of your lungs. And a lot of asbestos fibers are real pointed and sharp. And they'll penetrate through the lung. And they can cause a number of diseases. One of the worst diseases, which... Some people in our class, we've had at least two class members with this disease, is called mesothelioma. You probably see ads about it on TV because lawyers advertise for those cases to try and help those people. But mesothelioma is a cancer that's caused by exposure to asbestos. Here's the key. Asbestos doesn't cause it the day you breathe it. Doesn't cause it the week you breathe it, the month you breathe it, the year you breathe it. Generally, it causes the cancer 40 to 50 years after you breathe it. So that means when I get an asbestos plaintiff, a plaintiff who's suffering from this disease, one of the key things I have to do is try to figure out where they breathed asbestos 40 or 50 years earlier. And it's not enough in a case like that to prove this is where their exposure was, where they were exposed to the asbestos. I also have to prove that the, 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 the company responsible for putting the asbestos in the product should have known better. And so there's a complete workup of this historically. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of care. And we as a law firm and me as a lawyer, we've gone to great lengths to try and do that as honestly and as best as we can, including buying all sorts of products on eBay to have them tested to see what has asbestos in it. You'd be alarmed. 
and I don't want to alarm you, and this class is not about asbestos. But what this class is about is how important it is in any legal proceeding to go back in history. Part of the history that we go back to is in the 1930s, industry formed a group. It was originally called the Conicide Club. And then one of them woke up and realized that Conicide in Greek means killer dust. And they probably shouldn't name their club the Killer Dust Club. So instead they changed the name to the Industrial Hygiene Foundation. And that sounded pretty good. But what it really was was a collection of industries that worked together, pooled their money, pooled their resources to try and ultimately distort the literature about asbestos and try to persuade people that asbestos was safe or could be handled safely. And so they did studies about asbestos miners and whether they get cancer. The studies would show, yes, they get cancer. They would take that out of the study before they published it and tell the world they did not get cancer and lie about the results. Well, of course, in the legal world, it didn't take long before the Industrial Hygiene Foundation got sued because of their lies. But they're just a foundation. They just get... You know, money contributed from industry, so money, industry just quit contributing money, and they declared bankruptcy and said, we're going to dissolve. The bankruptcy was filed in Pittsburgh. I care enough about the history of this, I went up to the bankruptcy court, and I bought all of their assets, except for their, their uh, real estate. Don't think that was a big deal, nobody else wanted them. Basically, it meant I bought their files, their papers, and their library. And for a few thousand bucks, we were able to get something that we set up as a law firm so that the Industrial Hygiene Foundation Library that documents all of their lies and who the members were that were funneling money in for these lies, we've got it documented. So that you can go back over the last 80 years and do this research. The reason why is because in a legal world, it is absolutely imperative we understand the historical context for whatever it is we're doing. Now that's no less true for the Apostle Paul. I've just got to go back, instead of going back a hundred years, I've got to go back two thousand years. And you're on that journey with me. But it's a journey we need to take because historical context is critical to what we're studying. If, if you, we, we don't want to let our computer thoughts cloud the minds of the thoughts of history. People thought differently. It was a different time. I, I don't know how many of you watch the History Channel. How many of you, how many fellow nerds? Okay, oh, I love it, my class of nerds. Okay, I love the History Channel. I love when the world was black and white. And I love watching it. I mean, you know, seriously, how many films are in black and white? Okay, I, I, I like that. But for Paul's era, we didn't have the movie cameras. So if we're going to study historical context for Paul's era, our best cameras are books. Books that were written at the time of Paul. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at Paul's, the historical context 
for the charges that were brought against Paul. Now we started this class a couple of weeks ago. Remember, if a trial is going to be a fair trial, the defendant needs to know what crimes he or she's being tried for. That's the only fair way to do it. You cannot be called into court to defend yourself if you don't know what you've been charged for. That's true today. That was true 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire that was true. That was true 2,500 years ago with Rome. Rome was one of the first legal systems set up where they made it absolute, abundantly clear, a defendant is entitled to know what the charges are brought against that defendant so that that defendant can defend themselves properly. So within the Roman Empire, there was a stage. It was called the formula stage where the charges were clarified. The judge or, 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 or the praetor or whoever was presiding over it would have the accuser and would have the defendant come in or representatives of them and they would discuss what the charges were, what it is that was going to be tried. Now, we've got this for Paul. The accusations are laid out in Acts, the 24th chapter, verses 1 through 9. If we were to look at it, Let's wait. Let's look at it in a minute. Stay with me on the PowerPoint for a moment. I'll give you the synopsis. The power structure in Jerusalem that wanted to see Paul destroyed hired a lawyer named Tertullus. Not because he was a slow lawyer. Different kind of turtle. Tertullus is not Latin for slow, though it sort of sounds like it should be. Tertullus the lawyer came in and spoke to the judge and the judge was the, the, the Roman procurator for the area. He was Rome's representative. His name was Felix. And so the, the Tertullus the lawyer comes in and he accuses Paul of three things. He says Paul stirred up riots around the world. He said that Paul was a ringleader of the Nazarenes. And he said that Paul tried to profane the temple. Now, I did a written lesson this week. In fact, I even got it ready early. But Brent's in Sri Lanka, so it did not get emailed out to y'all. I'm going to try and get him to email it out because I have, like, stuff in this one. This is a, this is, this is what, I mean, if I'm going to write it, I want you to read it if you want to. So we'll send it out to you and you can go through and obviously the written lesson always has more detail than I can put into an oral lesson. Several weeks ago when I started this we talked about how the accusation of Paul stirring up riots around the world really is not going to carry the day. They're going to need witnesses for that and they don't have witnesses from around the world. And Paul didn't do that anyway. It was a false accusation. But the second accusation is a weird one now. Look at this. Accusing Paul of being a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Now, if you're sitting out there and you're saying, so what? Big 
deal? That would be a fair thing for us to say today. We need historical context to understand what Tertullus was really accusing Paul of. And it's hand in hand to some extent with trying to profane the temple. And so those are the things that I want to look at today. Now, in a, in a very real sense, um, Rick Meadow, come up here. Do we have a microphone? Does this microphone work? Come on. Rick is one of my lawyer buddies. Started our New York office way back in the day. Now lives here. Everybody greet Rick. Hi. <laughs> I tease Rick. He's my token Jewish example, okay? Or Louis Miori's second favorite Jew. Yes, Louis Miori's second favorite Jew. That's good. Okay. Now, this is not rehearsed, but I want to ask him a question as a fellow who's been litigating cases for 35 years, too. Here's the question. Clinton, come up here. Judge Clinton, come up here. Come on, we're going to make this a party. Everybody, y'all know Judge John Clinton. All rise. <laughs> okay. Okay. I got a judge and I got a trial lawyer. And I want to know if they're going to back me up in what I want to tell you. If I'm going to try a case in front of a judge, how important is it that I know everything I can about the judge? It is the most important thing you need to know. Why? I, I think because you can analogize this to a movie. Uh, a trial could be like a movie, and the judge serves as the director, the producer, part of the screenwriter, the editor, and the casting director. So you serve as basically everything. So we've got his honor here, and you're a criminal. All right, now we're going to flip it here. Thank you. Tell him what kind of bench you have. A criminal, county criminal court bench. Which means... You have people come up in front of you. Do you ever impose sentences on people? About 100 a day. <laughs> so if I'm going to represent someone in your court, I'd want to know, are you a law and order judge or are you one of these easy guys? Definitely law and order. <laughs> All right, y'all give them a hand. Go sit down. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. I want to know about the judge. I want to know, do I have some law and order hoss like John Clinton? Or do I have Judge Judy? <laughs> or do I have, you know, someone whose, who's, you know, life has dealt them a different deck of cards and, and they tend to be a little bit more easy on the accused? Wouldn't you want to know that if you were going in front of the judge? Isn't that kind of critical? Well, I think it's very important what we can know about the judge that Paul's going in front of. And I'm telling you, like Rick said, I want to know everything I can. And that's what we're going to get as we look at the historical knowledge. I want to know what I can know, not just about a judge in general, but personally... By the way, that guy looks tough, man. I don't know who he is, and if he ever watches this on the internet, I apologize right now if you get upset that I have put you on the screen. But you look like a tough judge to me. And so I just picked your picture out, put it up there. 
called you the Roman judge with a question mark. So I want to know everything I can about that judge personally. And as we look at these accusations, we're going to get to that because it's going to bear upon the judge. The reason why is Turtleus, that slow lawyer, is pulling some good lines. He, is, he knows who that judge is and he's speaking to that judge. And if we don't know who that judge is, we're not hearing the message. i got to tell you one more thing real quick. And I'm going to make it through this. Um, Ricky and I tried a case in Houston, no, in Angleton, uh, in, ni- in 2005. And it was against a, a, a company, and we hit the company really big. Got a, a really uh, a strong award in a case, and the company was stunned. And the company's response was, well, Lanier won that case because it was in his backyard. And so I said to the company, where's your backyard? I'll try the next one there. Because I think I won the case because your conduct was bad. And they said, well, our backyard's in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And I said, okay, fine. So we went up to Atlantic City, New Jersey. Now, one of the first things that the other side did before we started trial is they filed a motion with the court. It's called in law a motion in limine. It's got nothing to do with lemons. A motion in limine. What that motion means is, judge, tell Lanier before this trial even starts, he's not allowed to do any of the following. Usually it's 15, 20 things, two, three pages long. Theirs was about an inch and a half thick. And they basically said, don't allow me to do anything I ever did in the first trial. One of the things they said was, don't allow Lanier to quote the Bible. The judge said, well, he's allowed to quote Shakespeare, isn't he? Well, yes. He's allowed to quote, you know, the TV, isn't he? Well, yes. Well, why can't he quote the Bible as long as he's not, you know, saying it's divine? It's a a work of literature, if nothing else. And they said, no, no, judge. No, no, no. And I said, judge, I said, I think I'm allowed to quote the Bible. I said, as a practical matter, we're in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and... I probably would quote Donald Trump more so than I'd quote the Bible because I'm not sure people up here really care that much. And again, don't take offense if you live in Atlantic City and you're watching this. Praise God. Um, (laughs) But the the judge, Carol Higby, rest her soul, she's now passed away. What a delightful and an incredible judge she was. She said, well, Mr. Lanier, I don't see any problem with you quoting the Bible. Uh, but I guess I don't even have to address it if you're not going to. And then the other side said, wait a minute, judge. Here's what he does. <laughs> he quotes the Bible without saying it's the Bible. <laughs> He'll use a phrase that's out of the Bible. And if the jurors know the Bible, it's like a secret handshake. I said, Judge, I, 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 I can't promise I won't accidentally say that. I mean, I can try with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and with all of my mind. <laughs> but unfortunately, 
I have a degree in biblical languages. I translated the Bible to graduate from college. I've taught it for 30 years, and I don't know how to talk without using phrases out of the Bible. They're part of who I am. And the judge's eyebrow lifted because she knew the secret handshake I was given there. No. Uh, but Turtleus is talking in some secret language to the judge that if we don't know the historical context, we're not picking up on. He's appealing to this judge in some downright lawyerly, slick, slick lawyerly ways. And I really want us to understand that before this class is over. So let's start with this whole question of what's the deal of the Nazarenes? Why does Tertullus say that Paul is a ringleader of the Nazarenes? Well, first of all, it's true. I mean, Jesus was reared, born in Bethlehem, but reared in Nazareth. Let's put the map up. We've got, this is current, right? Italy is the boot. Next to Italy, we have Greece. Next to Greece, we have Turkey. Now, at that point, a lot of people sort of run out of countries. But most everybody will say, wait a minute, I recognize the Nile Delta, that's Egypt. And if that's Egypt, we could sort of place Israel. Now they get a little more iffy. That whole desert off to the right, that oil field, is called Saudi Arabia. Okay? And then, let's see what else we can do. Right north of Israel is Lebanon. And just north of Lebanon is Syria. And then if we want to go east of Syria, we're going to find Iraq. And if we want to go east of Iraq, we're going to find Iran. Now those are the countries as we call them today. What I'd like to do for Paul's time is take this area around Israel and let's blow it up a little bit. And let's look at it a little more carefully, okay? So within this area, we've got Jerusalem between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea in the hills. And that's the center of Judea, if you will. Nazareth is up there by the Sea of Galilee, or Lake Gennesaret. That lake up at the top is near where you find Nazareth. Now, these are in regions of the Roman Empire. The region around Jerusalem is called Judea. The region around Nazareth is called Galilee. Now, there's another region between Galilee and Judea. It was called Samaria. And the thing is, is the road from much of Galilee down through Judea went through Samaria. Now, Jesus is from Nazareth, which is a town in Galilee. And so we read Matthew 2.23, a gospel, a, a book written about Jesus' life. 
Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. And so that word Nazarene in the New Testament is used in reference to Jesus. Every time it's used except this one time in Acts. When Tertullus says that Paul is a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Now... The early church uh, uh, and, and, and the church since has always asked the question, where in the Old Testament, where in the prophets does it say that Jesus, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene? If we're just reading that, we'll never find it. We need to be reading in the Hebrew to find it. Because Nazarene comes from, if we come over here, for a moment, there is a the, the root to the word. Hebrew doesn't have. Um, let's see where I am here on here. Hebrew doesn't have vowels uh, uh, really, um, um, and so you've got an an n. And remember, they write Hebrew backwards. A tzadi, which is a kind of a t z sound. Uh, uh, Nasar uh, uh, and an R that should have a little more round to it but an R sound and that is it a Nazarene is a N-Z-R a Nazar and that's what the word Nazarene is, is in, in Hebrew but, but it's also or the root of it in Hebrew but it's also something else it, it's translated often a shoot or a branch A Nazar. Okay? Now, in that regard, if we go back to the PowerPoint, there is an Old Testament scripture that Jesus is the fulfillment of. Isaiah 11.1 1 is a scripture about the Messiah. And in it, it says, in the prophet Isaiah, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and Jesus is from Jesse, uh, uh, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Jews at the day knew that to be a messianic prophecy. That would be talking about the Messiah. The Messiah is to come through the line of Jesse, which is the line of King David. And that from him is going to bear fruit. It's going to be a blessing. Okay, that's the role of the Messiah, part of the role. Now, that means this shoot in Hebrew is a Nazar. So Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be properly a Nazarene. He also came from Nazareth, so that he's known as a Nazarene. It's a double layer of prophecy, if you will. Jesus is a Nazarene in the dual sense. Now there were some Jews in the early time that did not, that, that used the term Nazarene as, a, as a, an insult. And they didn't get it from Jewish scripture, but from other Jewish wisdom writings. The, the wisdom of Ben Sirach says, To the children of the ungodly, put out few branches, their unhealthy roots on sheer rock. It's the idea that, that the, the, the Nazar is going to be something that's um, uh, uh, ungodly. 
So a lot of scholars say the Jews would call Jesus a Nazarene because they were thinking him ungodly, while the Christians recognized him as a Nazarene because that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Well, maybe. I mean, those are both valid uh, uh, perspectives that people held at the time. But this is where historical context is critical. Because if we get the historical context, your eyes are going to go, whoa! I mean, it's, 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 it's mind-boggling, okay? You ready? Let's talk history. Let's go back to the map. Nazareth and the Nazarenes, the people from Nazareth, if you will, are Galileans, aren't they? Now, I want you to keep that in mind. Nazarenes are Galileans. And I want to talk to you on a timeline of relevant events in history. Here's your historical context. Throw some dates up there. Well, let's do 40, 50, and 60 A.D. And really, I'm most concerned about 50 to 60 A.D. Just a short 10 years. From 41 to 54, the emperor of the Roman Empire is Claudius. He was actually a pretty good emperor. He did pretty well. When he died, likely poisoned by his wife, so maybe he wasn't doing as well as I said. When he died, his great nephew, whom he had adopted as a son, his great nephew becomes emperor. That fellow's name was Nero. Bad, bad dude. Bad, bad emperor. Crazy man. Okay? Now, that's the Roman authority. The Roman emperor would appoint in the various regions of the empire the, the Roman authority for those regions. It wasn't like we have election today for our governor. Wasn't Greg Abbott ran for office in Texas or wherever you may be watching this from? What it was, was an appointment. So the, the procurator, the Roman authority over Judea, during the relevant times are two fellas. Cuminus from 48 to 52... And then Felix from 52 to 59. You with me? You got your timeline. Paul gets arrested in 57 AD. So Felix is who he's first trying his case in front of. And as Rick said, we want to know everything we can about Felix. I want to know, is he a law and order judge? Is he a Clinton? A judge Clinton. I want to know, is he, is he a law and order judge? Is he a criminal's soft on crime judge? Does he have a track record? I want to know how he got his job. Did he run Cuminus off? 
Did he, was he Cuminus's underling and he stabbed him in the back? I mean, these are important things I need to know. I'm going to try this case in front of him. Wouldn't you like to know this? Well, let me tell you all about it. As we look at these questions, we've got some incredible writings we can go to. And I want to take 10 minutes and we're going to read some of this together. And if you get tired of me reading, I'll start skipping and I'll just tell it to you. But I want you to hear from Josephus. Now, Josephus, make sure we're all on the same page with who this fella is. Josephus was about 15 at the time. And he was a Galilean. Josephus as a Galilean at the age of, of uh, closer to 20 or 30 becomes a military man too. Ultimately, Rome will revolt. Um, I mean, uh, the Jews will revolt against Rome. And that's going to happen somewhere. Sam, I didn't see you here. Just saw Sam. Sam's one of my asbestos lawyers. Right, stand up, Sam. One of my asbestos lawyers. He knows asbestos history better than anybody. I'd have called him up here if I'd have known he was in here. Sorry, Sam. Um, so, within... Ten years of, of Paul's arrest, the Jewish nation will be in outright rebellion to Rome. And Rome will send in their troops, sack Jerusalem, sack the temple, and just wreak havoc on, on the Jews. Okay? That happens in ten years. Paul is arrested. And, and in that Revolt, by the way, Josephus is one of the Jewish generals leading the revolt against Rome. Once he surrenders, the Roman general actually likes him and says, Will you swear allegiance to Rome? Josephus says, Yeah, I'm in. So the general takes him back to Rome. The general, by the way, becomes Caesar. After Nero. So the general becomes Caesar and he tells Josephus in Rome, we need to better understand the Jews. I want you to write histories about the Jews. So Josephus, a contemporary of Paul, writes histories about the Jewish people. We've still got them today. And so I want to read you what Josephus had to say about this critical time period and how Cuminus lost his job and Felix got the job. Because I promise you, Felix has only been in the job for about four years when Paul's in trouble. And four years fly by when you're an old guy like me. Now, after the death of Herod... Claudius set, Claudius was the emperor, the Roman emperor, set Agrippa, the son of Agrippa, there were a bunch of Agrippas, over his uncle's kingdom, while Cuminus took upon him the office of procurator of the rest, which was a Roman province. So this is when Cuminus took office as the procurator of Judea. Cuminus was the fella before Felix, who's in office with Paul. So this is answering our question. How did Felix get his job? 
Cuminus lost his, let's see what happened. Under Cuminus began the troubles. And the Jews' ruin came on. The multitude were coming to Jerusalem to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's Passover. So Jews were all coming down to Jerusalem for Passover. There was a Roman cohort okay, who stood over the passage of the temple. Because the Romans were armed, they kept guard at the festival to stop any rebellion that might happen when so many Jews were all in one place. So the Passover's happening, and there's a Jewish, I mean a, a Roman contingent of soldiers. Remember, the Roman fortress is built right next to the temple. And so the Roman soldiers are there, and they're armed, and they're watching. All of the Jews get together, and one of the soldiers pulls back his garment and bending down after an indecent manner turned his breech to the Jews and spoke such words as you might expect upon such a posture. Now that's written, translated by William Whitston in the late 1800s. I'm going to put that into common 21st century speak. The Roman soldier mooned all of the Jews and started making bathroom noises when he did it. At this, the whole multitude was indignant. They're coming together for the Passover. And up on the, the wall is this pagan who's mooning them and, and doing all sorts of things. So the multitude makes a clamor to Cuminus. They go complain to the procurator that he would punish the soldier. While the rasher part of the youth, those who aren't, you know, sometimes younger people have more energy and are a little rasher than the older people, and such as were naturally the most disorderly, fell to fighting, they picked up rocks, and they started chunking them at the soldiers. Now, Cuminus was afraid that all the people might make an assault on him. So he sent for more armed men. They came in great numbers into the passages. The Jews were in great dismay. They were beaten out of the temple. They ran into the city. The violence with which they were crowded was so great that they trod upon each other. And they squeezed one another until 10,000 of them died. This feast became the cause of mourning to the whole nation and every family lamented their fallen. And that's not the only event of significance during this short time that Cuminus is Felix's predecessor. I'm going to skip one and go to the one on, number th on, on chapter 3 or, or verse 3 of chapter 12. After this happened, this is another one, a fight between the Galileans and the Samaritans happened. It happened at a village called Geman, which is situated in the great plain of Samaria. Remember the map. Galileans, Nazarenes, have to go down through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. So they're going down, and a great number of Jews were going to Jerusalem, this time for Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
a certain Galilean was killed. And a vast number of people ran together out of Galilee to fight with the Samaritans. But the principal men among them came to Cuminus and begged him that before the evil became incurable, he would come into Galilee and bring the authors of the murder to punishment. But Cuminus postponed their supplication to the other affairs he was about then and sent the petitioners away without success. There's another place where Josephus writes about this and he actually says that Samaritans bribed Cuminus. So the Jews are going down, the Galileans, which would include Nazarenes, are going down to Jerusalem. They get waylaid in, in Samaria. One of them's killed. They go complain to Cuminus. Cuminus does nothing about it. When the affair of this murder came to be told at Jerusalem, the whole multitude went into disorder. They left Sukkot, the feast, and without any generals to conduct them, they marched with great violence to Samaria. Now, they're not going to be ruled by any of the magistrates. They are managed by Eleazar. He was an outlaw. They got an outlaw to go with them. And they fell upon those who were in the neighborhood in Samaria. And they killed them without sparing any age. And they set the villages on fire. Now, at this point, Cuminus gets involved. Cuminus gets his army together and he goes and starts killing the Jews. For burning the village and killing the Samaritans. You think Middle East violence is new? Because the Samaritans had killed one of the Jews. And finally, a, 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 another Roman power above Cuminus tells Cuminus and the Jews, certain Jews and certain Samaritans, all go to Rome. And report to Claudius the emperor. And they all go to Rome. And um, here's, here's the account of that in verse 7. When Caesar at Rome heard what Cuminus and the Samaritans had to say. He condemned the Samaritans. And commanded the three most powerful men should be put to death. And he banished Cuminus. He sent Sealer, who was one of the Roman soldiers, bound to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the Jews to be tormented, drawn around the city, and then beheaded. After this, Caesar sent Felix to be procurator of Galilee, Samaria, Perea, and ultimately Judea as well. How did Felix get his job? His predecessor didn't stop the Jewish Nazarenes and Galileans and, and, and stop the fighting that erupted because of the death of one when all of these other Jews then go out and start burning the Samaritan cities. And so in comes Felix. Now if you read about Felix and how he did his job... it became even worse. Felix starts 
uh, you know, the, the, the discourse was really, really bad. So Felix starts arresting all of these Jews. And Josephus says he's crucifying Jews daily for being rebel rousers and troublemakers. He doesn't want to lose his job. He doesn't want Caesar banishing him. He doesn't want to lose his citizenship. Doesn't want to lose his pension. Doesn't want to lose his power. Doesn't want to lose his control. Doesn't want to be sent out to the renegade outlaw lands beyond the Roman Empire. And so he's a law and order judge. And he is punishing Jews right and left. Arresting them and punishing them because they're the troublemakers that are causing problems. And that's how he got his job and that's how he's keeping his job. This is the one that now Tertullus goes to. And these are the accusations that Tertullus lays on Paul. Tertullus says the following. When he'd been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, to the, This is to Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace. You get rid of the rebel rousers. You've stopped the rioting. You haven't turned the other way and taken a bribe. You've actually done your job. Since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. We're the Jews that support you. We're the Jews who are proud of what you're doing. We're the Jews who are ratting out the, the brigands, the outlaws, the, the robbers, the thieves, the thugs, the problems, the troublemakers. In every way and everywhere, we accept with all gratitude. But... Look, I don't want to detain you any further. I beg you in your kindness, hear us briefly. This man's a plague. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, but he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, that group that follows the people up in Galilee. He even tried to profane the temple. Remember Cuminus under him, one of the soldiers profaned the temple. And a whole riot ensued and 10,000 got killed. Paul's tried to do the same thing. You just examine him. You'll see it. Paul's defense, by the way, includes Paul saying, You can verify... It's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. Don't blame me for all this stuff that's been happening in the last few years. I've been in the mission field. I got a really good alibi. Those are the charges that were being brought against Paul. That's the historical context. You got it? We're rolling toward the trial. We're getting closer. Here are your points for home. Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Jesus is the, the branch that bears fruit. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one. You know, the, the greatest fruit he could bear is putting us at peace with God. He pays the penalty. We're at peace with God. 
through Jesus, we don't fear death. We don't fear anything. No one is going to be able to touch us when we are in the hands of God. And Jesus is the one who put us right with God. We're not in his hands because we're good enough. We're not in his hands because we know the secret handshake. We're not in his hand because we've got the secret code. We're in his hand because Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins and made us right with God. Acts 24 says, We found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. Christianity is not just a feel-good religion. Christianity is not just a belief system. Christianity is rooted in real people, in real history. And as we read about it in real people, in real history, we find validated then what we experience today. Namely, while Jesus has brought us peace with God, and while Jesus has restored our relationship with God, for the Christian, it's not always blue skies and rainbows when you follow Jesus. Life has great problems and challenges and difficulties and hardships. There's suffering, there's persecution. There are so many difficulties and mountains that need to be climbed and valleys that need to be traversed. And, and, and you, sometimes you feel like you're drowning and sometimes you don't feel like your head's spinning. And sometimes you don't see answers and all. All of that is true. It's just as Christians, we know where to turn for strength and wisdom and guidance. But we need to remember that. And last, you can verify it wasn't more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. I like that because Paul knows as much as anybody, it's not always blue skies and rainbows. Paul's willing to suffer for Jesus, but not needlessly. God's not calling you to be miserable. There are times where your joy is going to have to sustain you because you may not be happy. You may have joy deep in your heart, but you may not be real happy with the way life's treating you right now. But what we're called to do is simply this. Do our very best for God and for His kingdom. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? And then I'll see you next week, many of you. Um, Father, I thank you so much for every listening ear and watching eye. And I ask your blessings upon them. I pray that you'll touch their hearts, Father. And move them to see who you are and what you have done in history to save your people. May we fall before you. Or, or, and, and Father, if we're far from that, may we seek you. Stir up within us a desire to know you. And then reveal yourself to us. Let us know who you are as you continue to change our lives through Jesus, your Son, our Savior, Messiah. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.